Thanks, Mike, and the worship team for uh, leading us in worship this morning. And now uh, we want to spend a few minutes just uh, into God's Word. A few years ago, when I was uh, in grade 7, so it was maybe more than a couple years ago, um, I went to this school, and uh, this is South Park uh, elementary school in Tawasson. And so for three years I lived in Tawasson. I did great in my grade five, six, and seven at this uh, at this particular school. And as as you do at those at those times, you know, you you gather a, a group of friends around. And I remember one time in grade seven, we had a, we were assigned a, a group project to do, and we were we weren't given groups. We were just told get in a group and. Uh, and then do a project. I don't even remember what the project was. It doesn't really matter. But uh, so my friends and I, there was five or six of us. We got together. We said, okay, we're going to do this project together. So that was all well and good. We started our planning. And one day the teacher gave us uh, an hour or so uh, to work for the whole class to work on their projects, to get into their group, spend some time, do the planning and all that sort of thing that you do in those sorts of group projects. So, well and good, we, uh, we went out of our classroom and in, in this particular school, we had, uh, the, the school had a couple of courtyards, interior courtyards into the school building. So, you couldn't get at them from the outside of the building. They were just uh, accessible from the inside. And so, th- there was some, and around those courtyards inside the building, there were some alcoves. Uh, and so, my friends and I, we took some chairs uh, or there, so there were some chairs there, so we claimed one of these alcoves for our meeting space. We had our meeting. We did whatever we needed to do. And then, uh, and then our, our, our period was over, and uh, I had to go do something. So I left and left my friends there to, to pack up the chairs and tidy the area that we were, uh, that we were in. Uh, school day was, was over, went home, everything was well and good. Seemed, everything seemed normal. The next day, my group, me, myself included, uh, get called out of class by the principal. Uh-oh, what did we do? Um, so he takes us to the little alcove where we were working and one of the windows, and the windows in that alcove were Florida ceiling, and one of the windows was broken. And he says, you guys were here in the last period, yesterday afternoon. Did you guys do this? And, I, and we were all like, no, no, don't know what happened. Don't know how this could have happened. Because, it's a, as I said, it was, an, it, it was a window on an interior courtyard. So it wasn't that some vandalism could have taken place overnight and broken the window. We had no idea how this could have happened. And so we, we strenuously denied any knowledge of, of this and we couldn't figure out how this happened. And the principal kept asking, well, what were you guys doing here? We explained to him. And he says, you guys don't know anything about this? And we were like, no, no, don't know anything about it. And so after a few minutes, he said, okay, go back to class. And uh, they got the window fixed. So later in the day, actually, at the end of that school day, one of my friends came to me and said, you know what? Remember you left a little bit early, a couple minutes before us? Actually, when we were packing up the chairs... One of them fell and broke the window. He says, so actually we knew exactly what happened and we did it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so I was okay in denying any knowledge of it because I wasn't there when that happened. But what about the rest of you? What's going on? And he was really bothered by this. My friend was really bothered that he had lied to the principal. And I was a little bit bothered now too because now I knew the truth and yet I hadn't, uh, I hadn't... Now what was I going to do with that truth? Now when the principal had talked to us, I could in good conscience say I didn't know anything about it. It wasn't us because that was my understanding of the situation even though it wasn't a true understanding of what really happened at that time. Anyway, he and I talked about it and in our grade 7, 11, 12-year-old minds, we decided we just wouldn't say anything and the whole issue went away. My friends and I, we never talked about that again. Uh, and, and actually with the whole group of friends, we never talked about that issue. It was just my one friend who came and told me what actually happened. We never, we never mentioned it. it. It all seemed to go away. But my friend and I, we were dealing with that dissonance in our life, that uh, uncomfortableness of knowing something and knowing that you haven't done the right thing. Now, thinking about that story, what kind of biblical reflection can we, can we bring on it? Well, uh, onto, onto that situation. Well, we can start with some... Uh, whoops, wrong way. Uh, we can start with... Um, with the Ten Commandments, for example, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, it says, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is specific about some testimony about saying something against your neighbor that isn't true, that you need to be sure you're doing that. Well, that's maybe not lying about whether or not you did something like that, breaking a window or something. So, uh, but that, but that rumbles in the back of your mind. You know, there's something in this about telling the truth, about making sure uh, that you tell the truth. You can look at another passage, such as Leviticus 19:11, which puts it plainly, clearly, and without any question about what God wants us to do. And it says simply, "Do not steal, do not lie, do not deceive one another." There's no difficult, complicated textual issues around this. There's no uh, question about what does the translation say and maybe the translation didn't get it right. Maybe it didn't come across from the Hebrew into the English quite right. It's pretty straightforward. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. And you can't go back and say, well, that's the Old Testament. This is New Testament times. This is, this is pretty plain and clear what God wants us to do. He expects His children to not steal, to tell the truth, don't engage in deception. This is pretty basic grade one Sunday school or preschool Sunday school material we're covering here. This is pretty straightforward for us. But it's not just Sunday school material. We hold these ideals in our society as well around us. It's not just here at church that we hold these up. If we steal, we're going to get in trouble. If we lie, we run the risk of finding ourselves on the wrong side of the law. If we are going out and actively deceiving other people, uh, then that could cause us some problems. So we recognize these sorts of laws in our society at large that these are not things that we should be doing. But we can explore this a little further. We can go into the New Testament and see what Jesus says 
in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. And he says all you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything else beyond this comes from the evil one. Now Jesus here in this passage, He's talking about taking an oath. So He says we should just say our, our yes is yes, our no is no, and that should be sufficient. We shouldn't have to make a special declaration to anybody to say, yes, for sure, absolutely, I'm telling the truth. We, he's saying we shouldn't need to do that. We should just always be saying yes, yes, or no, no, whatever. We should be telling the truth. And everyone should expect that every time we speak, we are telling the truth. And so we shouldn't, when it comes time to... Uh, we, we shouldn't have to make a special emphasis and say, yes, for sure, absolutely, I'm telling the truth here. We should just tell the truth. That should be our default position. But that's not always the way it is. But And then what does it mean anything beyond this comes from the evil one? I think it's, it's the idea there that there needs to be some special pressure on us to tell the truth. Otherwise, we would lie. But uh, but he's saying, no, just, just, uh, just tell the truth. But this idea of telling an oath even comes across into our society today. Um, when you go to court and you're giving testimony, you'll be asked to swear some kind of oath, something like, do you swear that the evidence you shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth shall help you, God? And you'll need to make some kind of affirmation in whatever way is meaningful to you, whether your hand on the Bible or some other book or, or something, that you are telling the truth. But you see, Jesus doesn't think we should need to do that. We should just be telling the truth. We don't need to make some special affirmation that we are indeed telling the truth. And then, one more, James, Jesus' brother, says something very similar in James chapter 5, verse 12 where he says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. James here too is talking about the same thing, about talking about taking an oath to affirm that you are, in fact, telling the truth. But the Bible is telling us we shouldn't need to do that. We should just be tell the truth consistently, always, day after day, never lying, never spinning it in a way that you deceive or hide the truth. You just say yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. And you tell the truth. Sounds really easy, doesn't it? Life is way more complicated than that. Life is way more complicated than that. It's really hard to work this out in real life when you're faced with a broken window, when you're faced with the, the telling the truth and the consequences that may come from that, you might find it really hard to simply tell the truth. I understand that. that is, it can be very difficult. And, and the older you get, the more life experience you get, the harder it is, the more difficult situations you find yourself in and you find that temptation to say, maybe it would just be easier if I didn't tell the truth. The cartoonists among us have been um, wrestling with this question about telling the truth for a while. So you'll, what kind of response do you give to someone when they say, 
How do I look today? Do I look bad? And so some of some of the cartoonists have uh, have uh, have picked on this uh, topic. Do I look fat? Am I fat? Why aren't you saying anything? <laughs> so you do think I'm fat because there's no good answer to that question, right? Because it's hard to tell the truth. Then there's this one, a little more blunt. <laughs> And then there's this one. Do these jeans make me look fat? It's a trap. That's a Star Wars reference. Anybody needs to, to know that. Yeah. And then there's, there's this one moving into the more religious territory. Oh, you can't really see that one. Be honest, Adam. Do these leaves make me look fat? Just a little. Man's second big mistake. Telling the truth. Okay, so... So there's challenges in telling the truth. It's not, uh, it's not that simple. Adult life never seems that simple. Life never seems that simple where you simply tell the truth. When I look back on the broken window incident, in my adult mind it seems fairly straightforward what I should have done at that point. But it wasn't me at the time. It wasn't my 11 and 12 year old uh, self-processing what was happening there. We continue to face issues that are more and more complicated with greater and greater consequences. And what do we do? How do we handle that? And we can point to some Bible stories that, uh, that help us to think this through. We can point to some Bible stories, interestingly, where the truth is bent or maybe even completely broken. And maybe you can think of some of those, but let me just uh, mention a couple of them. There's one in, in the story of Abraham where he lies to protect himself. And he does this actually twice when you look uh, at, the, at the Scriptures. As Abraham and his wife Sarah, and this is a, an artist's depiction of them, Abraham and Sarah going before a king, as they travel into a new land, they find themselves in a foreign country. And Abraham, he's, well aware of his situation. He knows his wife is very beautiful. And he knows that as he's going um, into these new countries, if the king decides that, he, that the king himself wants to take Sarah, um, he will simply kill Abraham and then take Sarah as his wife. At least that's what Abraham in his mind has anticipated. He's, he's envisioned the future looking like for him. He says, I'm going to go into this, into this foreign country and the, the king's going to see my wife. He's going to want her, and he's going to kill me and then take my wife. So his approach to this, his answer to this situation, is to say, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Okay, so that's a pretty big lie right there. Now, there's some uh, biblical evidence that maybe she was some kind of half-sister or something like that. So maybe it's not quite that bad. But he is practicing a total deception here. And he's saying, she's my sister, so go ahead, king. You can, you can freely take her in good conscience because she's my sister. She's not my wife. And then uh, the king will look on me with favor and say, okay, well, you can live because I really like your, your sister. And so he's hoping that he will be treated well for her sake. So in Genesis chapter 12, he goes and he tells Pharaoh, Sarai, Sarah, 
is his sister, not his wife. Then in Genesis chapter 20, with King Abimelech, and this is this picture here, uh, there's this artist, uh, decept- or, or, uh, uh, artist uh, representation of this. Um, this is King Abimelech. And King Abimelech takes Sarah as his wife. He doesn't actually uh, consummate the marriage. Uh, he gets a message that says, don't do that because she's not actually, she's already married to Abraham. So this works for a little while, but eventually the truth comes out. Abraham's life is spared. Uh, Abraham didn't need to worry because when the truth came out, his life was spared. He didn't, he didn't, he was worrying about this for nothing and he was doing all this deception for really no reason. And today, when we think about this sort of thing that, that Abraham did, it's, 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 it makes us really uncomfortable. It's not a culturally appropriate thing to do in our society today. It's hard to imagine and it makes us, it's one of these things that makes us realize the biblical culture is very different than ours today. But this is a story, this is a Bible story where Abraham, Abraham, one of the, the patriarchs, one of the founding fathers of Israel, lies not just once, but twice to a king about who this woman is. The Bible never commends him for it. It, never, it just records that this is what he did. It never says he did a good thing. We also read about this in Joshua chapter 2. And it's interesting, Pastor Sam mentioned uh, this uh, person last week in, uh, in, in his sermon. In Joshua chapter 2, we read about the innkeeper, the harlot or the prostitute, Rahab, who lies to protect the two Israelite spies who had come into the land to check out what was going on and to see if they were ready to move into the land. They've gone to Jericho to spy out the land and they end up staying at Rahab's inn, sleeping on the roof. She knows exactly who they are. And when the king's men come looking for them, she says, she says this. Here's the, the story. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. What does Rahab say? But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that led to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So here we read about Rahab, a woman who is mentioned a number of times in the Bible, even sits in the written genealogy of Jesus Christ. And she doesn't tell not one, not two, not three, but four pretty big lies about What had happened here? So Rahab starts off okay uh, in the story. My thing's not working here now. There we go. So she starts off in, in, in telling the story. She says the truth. She says, yes, the men came to me. Okay, that's true. But then she says, but I did not know where they had come from. A total lie. She knew exactly who they were. She knew exactly where they had come from. She knew exactly what they were there to do. So then she goes on. And she says, 
and my thing's not working again. You can get it going. Okay. Technical difficulties. I love it. There we go. Okay. When it was time to close, and then she, she, she says at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. No, they didn't. She knew exactly where they were. They were up on her roof. They didn't leave. So she's telling them just this bold-faced lie. They left. No, they didn't leave. They were on your roof. Okay? And then it continues. I don't know which way they went. No, she knows exactly where they are. So there's number three. And then she gives, she says, you may catch up with them. No, they're not. She's sending them out to, to go across the Jordan River. They're never going to catch up with them because they're up on her roof. And here it is. Not one, not two, not three, not, but four really big lies. How does this ever fit in with God's command that you're not going to lie? Does it, does, this may seem to us from our human perspective like a good thing that she has done. She's protected these Israelite spies. They're the heroes in the story. The king's men who are, who are coming to pursue them are the bad guys. And so we may say, well, she's protecting the good guys. It's okay. But God doesn't say, in those passages that we read earlier, God doesn't say, don't lie, but when the good guys are in danger, it's okay to lie. God just says, don't lie. And yet, here's Rahab, and she is clearly lying about what's going on. And it seems to us maybe like this was a good thing, but is it really? And it's interesting, uh, there's a couple, couple of thoughts here. Consider that even in Rahab's case, deception is never praised. Even as she is mentioned in Hebrews 11, even as she is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, that deception is never praised. It's never said she did a good thing by not telling the truth, by lying about what happened. We don't find that she is praised for that, that that scene is a good thing. She had other good qualities, but that wasn't one of the things that was highlighted. The Bible never says she did a good thing by lying. The other interesting comment to make there, again, thinking about Rahab, is God uses flawed people. You don't have to be a perfect person for God to use you in a significant way. And here was Rahab, who is, as we've been saying, is, has been mentioned a number of times. And there's, these are just a couple of examples we can go through the Bible and look at others who did the same sort of thing and God uses them anyway. A sin like that doesn't uh, assume that God can't use you. But what's, what's going on behind the scenes? Just think about that for a a minute or two. What's it, what, what was Rahab, what was Abraham saying by using these lies, by not telling the truth? They're saying God isn't big enough to handle these situations. God isn't big enough. He can't handle it. If I tell the truth that the spies really are on the roof, somehow this is going to destroy all of God's plan. Abraham knows what God has promised to him. And he knows that God is going to fulfill that promise and he thinks, but I'm going to get killed if I tell the truth. Is God's plan so easily frustrated? Is God's plan so easily defeated because we do what God has asked us to do? I don't think so. It's because we're thinking 
somehow God's plan isn't going to work out if I tell the truth, so I need to step in and give God a hand here by making sure that the king's men go across the Jordan instead of finding the spies. I need to give God a hand by deceiving the kings about who my wife is so that my life is protected. Would the spies have been safe if Rahab had told the truth? We don't know, but God is sovereign in this situation. Maybe the spies would have been safe, maybe not. Would Daniel's friends have been uh, safe? Um, they, were, they were kept safe as they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And they, they said, look, it doesn't matter what happens to me. You know, God is still God. Whether I live or die, whether I'm burned up in the furnace or not, it doesn't matter. God is sovereign in this. But we tend to do that because we don't think that God will give us the grace to handle the consequences. The fear of telling the truth is too great because we fear the consequences. We might get in trouble. We might find ourselves in financial difficulty or something may happen. And so we fear that instead of really trusting God. And so we need to think about God's sovereignty in this equation. What would I read? What would I do if I had to redo my grade seven situation? It's hard to say. I'm just like you. I'm not perfect. I liked my friends and I wanted them to stay my friends. And if I had gone and told the truth, I don't know if I would have wanted to be my friends anymore. Perhaps in my adult thinking, I could have gone to them and said, "Look, we need. We know what really happened there. We need to go back and tell them what what really happened." You know, in my adult mind, that was that would be the the sort of solution to that problem. But uh, in my 11-year-old brain, that wasn't uh, what I thought I would I would do. I didn't do that. But you know, how would you how would you redo it? How do we deal with this? Well, we can be reminded that God uses people like Abraham and Rahab. God can use us, even if we aren't quite exactly what God wants us to be or what He or, or do what He wants us to do. And that really is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that this isn't the end of the world. We go back to the character of God, and here in Exodus chapter 34, verse six and seven, it says that God is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. In those situations, when we're faced with that and maybe we don't make the right choice, we can rejoice in the good news that we have. That we have a God who is abounding in forgiveness, abounding in love, in faithfulness. And we can be encouraged by that. We rejoice in that. That's our hope in God. We don't get stuck in our sin, but we keep moving ahead because God is who God is. He is this kind of God. And we can rejoice in that. So when we find ourselves in a tough situation, when we struggle to find the right answer, how are we going to answer this? When we struggle to find the courage to do what is right, we also know this is the kind of God that we serve. That He is full of, uh, of, of love, of faithfulness and forgiveness to us. We don't need to condemn ourselves because God doesn't condemn us. Take heart. Be encouraged. And remember Rahab, the Canaanite harlot that ended up in the lineage of Jesus. 
in the in uh, ended up with a mention in Hebrews chapter 11 be encouraged by that that what we what we do doesn't limit our usefulness to God because he is a god of forgiveness and he is there to help us so as we think on that we can uh, think on uh, on Rahab think about Rahab this week and how she was used by God despite the weaknesses. And that's what we take encouragement and hope from. Thank you.